my name is Renee, and I'm an elder here at the Open Door. Uh, when Cheryl originally asked me to consider sharing a story about when my faith was challenged, I hesitated. Because um, if I were to tell a story about a time when my faith was challenged, and then still be standing here in front of you in a church setting, that would imply that there was resolution to that story. And that's not always been my experience. Um, but Cheryl and John encouraged me to share my stories anyway. So, um, <clears throat> my, in truth, my journey of faith has been an unraveling. Um, like many of you, I grew up in the context of evangelical Christianity uh, with a strong emphasis on right theology. <laughs> that term. Uh, if we were saved by faith, then oh my goodness, we have to have the right faith and the right understanding of God. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm an English professor over at the University of Pittsburgh, and I promised that the elder I promised the elders that this was going to be really nerdy. So um, I had what I call a five paragraph thesis statement kind of faith. So, I'm just curious how many of you remember the structure of a five paragraph thesis statement? Yeah, and how many of you like get achy feelings in your stomach when I say that? Yeah. Um, so, the five paragraph thesis statement essay goes like this The introduction leads into an argumentative statement that you can prove in three points, and you should have a paragraph for each one of those points then you might have a naysayer paragraph about why they're wrong, and then you conclude it all saying the same thing but with different words in the conclusion. Right? Um, high schoolers, I'm going to tell you a secret. It's terrible writing. <laughs> it really is. Uh, I'm also a former high school English teacher, and I understand why we teach this structure. Um, it's a very helpful nugget of writing. It's a structure. It teaches us how to be cohesive, um, but it leads to really terrible thinking because it's a fortress. It's a fortress around an idea, and there's no room for movement. So when I came to the University of Pittsburgh in 2007 to study in the MFA program uh, for creative writing, I had only ever experienced school in a Christian setting. I went to Christian school K through 12, college, my first master's degree, and I had taught at missionary schools in South America. Uh, I knew all the answers, uh, and I had all the three points to back them up, and by the time I came to Pitt, my five paragraph fortress was falling apart out of life experiences. And in my first year at Pitt, it crumbled down completely. Uh, I funded, uh, to put it succinctly, I funded that year by being a teaching assistant for a history professor who taught colonial Latin American history. So I ended up teaching about the abuses of the missionary priests in South America um, on the very land where I had just lived under a missionary visa. 
I saw the threat between colonial practices then and what I had experienced on the mission field um, and the prejudices and the injustice of our political and social systems and how Christian theology undergirded all of that uh, with our right answers, you know? And I remember one day thinking that everything that I knew about God was wrong, that I was going to throw it all out, and I imagined myself taking my theology and throwing it over the balcony of my third floor apartment in Squirrel Hill. And it like crashed on the steps outside the apartment building. And then I walked around for the rest of the day thinking that God was going to smite me dead with lightning. <laughs> but it didn't happen. And it didn't happen the next day or the next. Uh, and I was attending the open door at the time. I was in a small group with folks who had similar questions and similar crumblings of faith. I saw Brock here earlier, but hey, there you are. Um, DJ, our former pastor, called my journey safe, but it didn't feel safe. It felt wicked and dangerous, uh, like I was sliding down the slippery slope that I'd always been warned about, uh, and I went straight down it. <laughs> Uh, I remember sitting on Steph Bell's porch one morning for a committee meeting of something or other, and she talked about trusting the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And I breathed into that idea, talking with the people who were there about how that was so revolutionary, the idea that there was anything good inside me, even if it was the Holy Spirit, that I could like listen to that voice, because total depravity, I'm a complete born and raised Calvinist over here. Um, it was just revolutionary idea, but what was in me were questions. So I no longer have a faith of answers. I have a faith of questions. Um, at Pitt, in our first year writing courses, we don't teach argumentative thesis statement-based writing. They really don't know what to do with that. Uh, we teach academic inquiry, and we teach questions. Uh, our Office of Undergraduate Research encourages students to follow their curiosity. So if you think about it, that's what academics really is. It's questions, how does this work? What happens if I try to split an atom apart? What really happened during those 30 years on the island of Granada? Um, how can we make an electric car that goes farther than 150 miles between charges? What happens if we create vaccines using mRNA technology? What would Aristotle say about the internet today? The word essay comes from the French verb to try. It's, an essay is to try out an idea on the page. So basically what I'm saying here is that learning to teach inquiry-based writing changed both my writing and my faith. And it's taken some days and time when I'm afraid of divine lightning. I'm okay now with my theological questions. The nature of God is still a mystery to me, but it turns out that I'm not alone. Uh, in his book, Divine Grace, Richard Rohr reports that theologian Karl Rayner, so, like, this is ages ago, suggested we should stop calling God, God, because of all the connotations around that word. And he suggested using holy mystery for 50 years instead, and see what happens to our notions of God and our notions of faith. What happens if we use new language? What happens if we listen to theologians from South America? 
What happens if we listen more and then we try to explain? What happens, and this one scares me, we can talk about this. Uh, what happens if we raise children who are comfortable with questions? How do we raise kids in a progressive faith? I'm becoming welcoming to my questions during learning, through learning about the importance of an inquiry-based faith, and knowing that I'm not alone in my theology or lack thereof. I'm not alone in community. questions. 
fits well. What people are finding is that asking the right questions can be more effective in leadership than giving the right answers. Coaching, all those other things, therapy work, spiritual direction. It's all about the right questions. But, but, unfortunately, uh, we start our scripture today with a really bad question, right? Bad questions can be humiliating, they can be dehumanizing, they're sarcastic in nature. Bad questions can be really hurtful. Have you ever been asked a question that you know right away is really just about, not about pulling goodness out, but sticking a knife in? Yes, yes. You know, the, the saying um, goes, there, there are no bad questions. It's actually not true, right? That's a big lie. I think we often live as though it's true, but it's really not. And that's why when we want to hurt each other, we often use these sorts of questions that are painful and sarcastic and unfair. There are bad questions. Questions can have those hidden motives. They're not coming out of curiosity, without a judgment or sarcasm. Questions are very good when they come from a place of curiosity, when they're honestly seeking to know another person better, to help that person know themselves better. But questions can also show ulterior motives. Questions can show that we've already formed our answer about our opinions about another person. Questions can help people discover for themselves the answer, and on the other hand, they can be dehumanizing and accusatory. So the disciples, they ask Jesus what I think is the wrong question, right? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now this question is not one of those sarcastic knife kind of questions. That comes later in the scripture. Uh, a part that we didn't read, but we're going to. That comes. But this question is, is a bad question because it's, it's born out of something else. First of all, the, the disciples, they've already made an assumption about another person. So they're not being sarcastic here, but they formed an assumption about another person. And their assumption is built on a couple different things. I think it's built first, quite simply, on bad theology. That all bad people or bad things that happen to people is because that person has made a mistake in life. And even worse, they are, uh, with this man, asking an accusatory question, a question that ignores this man's personhood. So before we go much further, I, I want to think, I want to bring up uh, the fact that, that ableism is a thing in this scripture. I want to recognize that ableism can be um, interpreted from this text. The only thing I want to say about ableism is that there is no such thing as a perfect person. There is no model human being 
and some people are on the outside of that model, and some of us are on the inside. There is no such thing as a perfect person. Every human being has faults and wounds and things that maybe they wish they could change but can't, emotional baggage, physical injuries, whatever it may be. Any imperfection is not necessarily something that must be changed about who we are. Ableism is really a lie. It's the lie that there is uh, a perfection that some people have and others don't. Some people with disabilities may deeply desire for change in their body and mind, for whatever that disability may be. And others may have created ways of being that their so-called disability no longer hampers them, but is simply a part of who they are. This week, Alyssa and I were watching a, um, a, a show that we, we often watch called The Good Doctors. Anybody watch The Good Doctor? Like, no one? <laughs> James watches The Good Doctor. I love it's like God. kind of one of those, I mean, it's kind of annoying because it's a medical show and and they do, like, there's probably like eight doctors, and they do everything from like uh, prenatal surgery to like broken bones and heart surgery, and it's all the same doctors. Brain surgery, like, incredible, <laughs> groundbreaking brain surgery, but they're all just ER doctors, basically. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of unrealistic. But, but we watch it anyway because we like the characters. And one of the characters is Dr. Murphy. It's the good, the good doctor is Dr. Murphy, I think, in the show. He's kind of the main character. And Dr. Murphy struggles, um, sometimes struggles, and sometimes um, prevails like no one else can because he has autism. And in this week's episode, Dr. Murphy needs a lawyer, and he accidentally runs into this woman in the law office who's working in this basement, um, I guess it's not basement, but working in this like corner office that nobody is supposed to go to, and it turns out that, that she has OCD. And he immediately knows that she is the right one to be his lawyer, and it's, it's TV. But it is a really, really cool look at how she struggles with OCD, but also wins the case because of the way that she sees the world through having this, quote, disability. Um, I, I enjoy it. Both characters are seen as people with incredible skills, not despite their struggles, but because they have real struggles in the world. Unfortunately, we label some things as disabilities and other things as just normal struggles in life. Everybody struggles. So here we are, back in our scripture, and the disciples get the question wrong. We all have weaknesses, unique qualities. We all have things that we struggle with. They don't make us less valuable human beings. Each of the disciples and each of us are no different 
than someone whose struggle is less obvious. This man was blind, and it was very obvious to everybody that something was, quote, wrong with him. The disciples got the question wrong. They thought that God must have punished him for something he or his parents did wrong. God does not punish us in this way. The question the disciples asked assumed that everyone else's struggles, who are less, you know, struggles that are less obvious, didn't deserve any kind of punishment. But this man, something, something big had happened. Everyone whose weakness in life is that is visible to others must be in a state of punishment from God. Is what the disciples assumed. That's just wrong, and Jesus points it out right away that no, no one has sinned here. Throughout the scriptures, we can see both ideas within the, the Jewish and Christian community that says somebody must be wrong, God's punishing them, this is how things work. And then we see prophets, and I mean, go read Job. Uh, things happen, and it's not because we're being punished, and they go back and forth throughout the scriptures. Another thing that the disciples got wrong was people are not objects for theological debate. This is a big one, right? The disciples are walking by talking about this guy. Not interacting with him. They're, they're talking about him. And they assume that Jesus is going to talk about someone and use this man as an object lesson on, on sin and what happens when we sin. They assume Jesus will talk about him. They assume that he's not worthy of direct interaction. His disability and therefore his assumed sin make him less than in their wrong thinking. Sad reality is that I think everyone, I think that, that's how this guy, this blind man had experienced life. People talking about him and not interacting with him. So this leads to the revolutionary kindness that Jesus expresses to this man. Jesus completely turns the situation around. Not only does Jesus interact with the man, but what does he do at the end of, in, in verse 7? He doesn't just interact with him. He doesn't just talk about him. He doesn't just talk to him, with him. Jesus physically touches the man, uniting earth and body and spirit. Jesus' touch shows that this man was not dirty or sinful. He was a whole person loved by God. I think this is the most powerful crux of this story. Jesus demonstrates kindness and compassion. When we act out of kindness and compassion in the world, something incredible happens. And that's what Jesus talks about here. The purpose of our, 
of our weakness is that God may be glorified. So our question, one of the questions I have for today is might God be glorified in our weakness, in our questions, in our doubt, in our not knowing, in our hurt and our pain and the things that we wish we could change about ourselves but we haven't been able to? Might God be glorified not in, not in spite of our weakness, but because of it, through it, with it. And Jesus here chooses to give sight to this one. Most often, God uses our struggle to bring God glory even when the struggle doesn't go away. Raise your hand if that is more the way it happens in your life. I haven't had the things miraculously change. I know I have plenty of struggles and weaknesses in my life. I have faults. I have things I wish I could hide or overcome that I haven't. The point of God being glorified through our weakness is not is not that things automatically change, become healed, or that we somehow become stronger, closer to perfect, but that God is made known in our struggle. The ending of this story has the townspeople throwing the man out of the synagogue. It's actually kind of the middle of the story, and I'm not even going to read all that. So the, the man, he's He's healed, he goes to the synagogue, and unlike the story that we heard last week, last week, yeah, last week when I was on the screen because of COVID, um, unlike that story where the woman at the well goes to the town and everybody's like, what? This is amazing. And they all come and, and uh, believe in the words that Jesus is, is sharing with them. This man goes to the synagogue, does the same thing, tells his story. The people, the Pharisees especially, are like, <clears throat> no. <clears throat> no, this, this isn't right. You're a sinner. And we don't know who this guy is. And it must be from the devil or something. They don't believe. In verse 25, I'm going to read a few verses here. Our, our scripture continues. It says, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, this is the man speaking, the man, man who had been blind. Whether he is a sinner or not, Jesus, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. You, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't know. We don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that is remarkable. 
You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So what we see here is not the response that we would expect when someone, um, when, when God is being glorified, right? Our weakness, even when it's transformed, can bring conflict. The crowd of Pharisees here are not interested in an outsider from a fishing town overthrowing their social structures and beliefs about sin and punishment. I think that's the real, the real problem they have. This would overthrow their beliefs about who's in and who's out, who's in the center and who's not. I think that's what is happening. They believe, like the disciples did, that the poor, the poor, the struggling, anyone in the world who didn't have everything that they wanted was in that place because they should be, because they deserved to be. That belief, belief is driven by a, a top-down theology that God punishes people and therefore we can leave people to suffer in their punishments. It's nothing we can do. God's punishing them. God is in control of everything. We can leave it. So if Jesus is about turning that upside down, which he obviously is, then even the rich will fall down like leaves and the poor be lifted up. We'll sing that later. Jesus then finishes the story. And he comes back to this man and the man recognizes Jesus as Lord. I love this part. Jesus says the blind will see and those who think they have sight, those who think they have perfection or know absolutely, will be made blind. Oh, nay, you're in a good place. <laughs> this is about spiritual blindness and spiritual awakening. The man in this story may be able to see with his eyes, but the real miracle is he's able to see Christ because of his humbleness. So the story then ends with Jesus again extending compassion to this man by asking him a question. Here's the last few verses of the scripture. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. So this, that's where the compassion comes in. Jesus heard they'd thrown him out. And he went and he found him. And he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man said, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. So still, he still has questions. But Jesus has him right, right where he wants him to be. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one you're speaking with. 
And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Honest questions. This man's man finds the truth in the person of Jesus. Answers, not in facts. Answers come through relationship in the person of Jesus. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him, I love this part, okay, keep listening. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say, say this and ask, what? Are we blind too? All right, finally we get to the sarcastic question. What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Awesome. Nail it home. There it is. The Pharisees' sarcastic question. What are we blind to? Jesus' answer sums it all up. If your arrogance tells you that you have all the answers, all the all the answers to all the questions, then yes, you're blind. <laughs> Sorry. Friends, it is in our humbleness that we find healing. It is in our humbleness that we find forgiveness. It is in humbleness that we find peace. In our unanswered questions. It is in humbleness that Jesus is revealed in our lives, and into the world. You say that again. It is in humbleness that Jesus is revealed in us and into the world. Amen.